The Gaza Strip is suffering because it's under blockade, and it's under blockade because of a political decision by Israeli governments to maintain the segregation of two million Palestinians. Welcome to the 972 Podcast. I'm Michael Schaefer-Omerman. And I'm Ido Conrad. On the podcast, we'll be interviewing activists, politicians, and journalists to discuss the issues and stories that other media outlets tend to ignore. What are we talking about this week, Michael? Well, on Monday morning, militants in Gaza fired a rocket that struck a home in central Israel, wounding seven people, and in the next 24 hours, as Israel pounded Gaza with warplanes, it felt like we were on the verge of war. Usually when this kind of thing happens, we tend to focus on the last thing that happened. But that kind of misses the larger context, the occupation and the blockade on Gaza, and the way that affects the people living there. Yeah. To talk about that and a whole lot more, 972's Henriette Shakar spoke with Tariq Bakoni, an analyst for the International Crisis Group at his home in Ramallah. But what actually was behind these rockets, Ido? It seems like they came out of nowhere. Well, Tariq has a theory. He believes that on the eve of Israeli elections, Hamas fired these rockets to force Israel to comply with the terms of a ceasefire that the two parties agreed to just months ago. And what's this I hear about accidentally fired rockets? Maybe it's better if we just listen to the interview. Here's Henriette Shakar and Tarek Bakoni. Just a note to our listeners, this interview was recorded on Tuesday morning, so if things have changed by the time you listen to this, keep that in mind. Tarek Bakoni, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me here. A rocket from Gaza hit a home in central Israel on Monday morning. Israel responded by bombing in Gaza all night, and as we speak on Tuesday afternoon, it's still unclear how this escalation will develop. Can you tell us what happened? Did this seemingly come out of nowhere? This did not come out of nowhere. Israel and Hamas, the faction that's ruling the Gaza Strip and that's been ruling the Gaza Strip since 2007, have been in indirect negotiations since last July. In November, there was a ceasefire agreement that was negotiated indirectly between Hamas and Israel under Egyptian and UN mediation. Part of that agreement was to avert the risk of an escalation in the Gaza Strip, but subsequent parts of the agreement spoke about ways in which the humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip can be alleviated, namely through easing restrictions in terms of access of people and goods into and out of the Gaza Strip. So since... November, there have been measures taken by both Hamas and Israel to start dealing with the economic crisis in the Gaza Strip. But unfortunately, as with past ceasefire agreements, as soon as the urgency of the situation is removed, as soon as the Gaza Strip looks like it's stabilized for a few days, Mm -hmm. the onus or the impetus that Israel feels to sustain the ceasefire and to really grapple with the crisis within the Gaza Strip that is the result of the blockade. So I think we need to see the rocket that that was fired last night, as well as the rocket that was fired, quote-unquote, mistakenly, on the 14th of March, 10 days ago, towards Tel Aviv. Both those, I think, were efforts by Hamas and by Palestinian factions within the Gaza Strip to pressure Israel to meet its obligations under the ceasefire agreement and to start dealing with the implications that the blockade has on the Gaza Strip in a more sustainable way. 
And when you talk about the implications of the blockade, we've seen how the World Bank warned that Gaza's economy is on the verge of collapse. We're seeing hospitals suffer from severe shortages in medical supplies and equipment. We have an ongoing fuel crisis. There's a lack of sufficient access to clean water. Can Gaza even survive another war? I think that's a very good question, and it's a it's quite a painful one. The Gaza Strip has been suffering from restrictions, and its infrastructure has been deteriorating for decades as a result of Israeli policies. But when we look at it today, specifically, the situation in the Gaza Strip is quite unprecedented in terms of the crisis that we're facing. There are the obvious elements of the blockade mm-hmm. and uh, the restrictions on freedom of movement and, and the economic implications of that. But there are also sanctions that are taken by the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank uh, against the Gaza Strip that mean that people are no longer getting their salaries and they're no longer getting their pension. Their ability to buy basic goods is getting reduced. More than that, there's been a protest, the Great March of Return protest, which, of course, we are seeing the one-year anniversary of on Friday, that has had a, a staggering number of injuries. You know, we have more than 6,000 Palestinians have been injured through live fire, but more than 27,000 have been hurt or injured by other ways. So imagine the implications this has on a health sector that's already struggling. Imagine the implications it has on families whose sole breadwinners are now amputees who are no longer able to go and work. And so the, the economic crisis in the Gaza Strip is really getting to a point of I mean, it has been in a very disparate situation for years now, but it's getting to a point where many Gazans would tell you that they have nothing left to lose. And so when you get to that situation, you sort of understand both why someone would go to the fence even at risk of gunfire, and also why organizations might think that they could deploy rockets into Tel Aviv, even if that might risk an escalation. That's that's an interesting connection there between a year for the Great Return March and the recent flare-up. Can you tell me more about how these two events are connected or not so connected? They're very much connected. The Great March of Return began last year as a call by civil society that was a popular mobilization. The thinking was very much that in order to break the militarization that had shaped relations between Hamas and Israel, that popular mobilization, peaceful protests, civil disobedience might alter the dynamics and might allow the international community to challenge the way that Israel has operated within the Gaza Strip, which included policies of isolation and policies of military force. In in many ways, the Gaza Strip is seen as being synonymous with Hamas in the international community. And so the popular mobilization was seen as a way of breaking that. Unfortunately, that's not how things unfolded. And a year on, we see two main developments. The first is that Hamas has become more of an active player in the Great March of Return. And this is a story that's familiar to Palestinians, that political parties and factions subsume popular struggles for their own factional Mm -hmm. interests. But the more important thing that we see is that Israel began from day one, before the protests had even been initiated, uh, adopted open fire and a live fire policy against these civilians at staggering cost in terms of the, the loss of human life. But what that means as well is that popular mobilization on its own failed to compel Israel to revisit its 
blockade mm-hmm. or its policies of isolation and failed to compel the international community to bring pressure on Israel to deal with the Gaza Strip differently. In other words, the lesson that came out of the Gaza Strip was that only force works. Only when Hamas got involved was there an opening to start talking in terms of ceasefire negotiations and to bring more pressure on Israel. Only when the protests appeared to be more disruptive and more intense to the peripheral communities within Israel, did Israel respond. Before that, there was a very clear open fire policy and simply an effort to prevent Palestinians from congregating around around the fence. And so there is very much a link between the rocket fire and, and the, the beginning of the Great March of Return. And so it's interesting that once the civil society took matters into their own hands, the way to ease the blockade again was to put this protest under Hamas's wing. It sort of keeps control with Hamas. Absolutely. For me, this is the biggest tragedy of the Great March of Return, because I think that it was very much a movement that was inspiring when it started. And I think Palestinians, not just in the Gaza Strip, but everywhere, are talking about shifting to a rights-based struggle. They're talking about shifting their struggle to an anti-apartheid struggle, to one that demands equality and freedom across the land from the river to the sea. I think the Gaza Strip and what's been happening over the course of the past year shows how treacherous that path is. It shows how worrying it is for Palestinians to mobilize on the grassroots level because they face unprecedented challenges. They face challenges from Israel in terms of a lethal response that has no qualms killing and firing at civilians who are engaged in popular protests. But you also see internal challenges where Palestinian factions co-opt and mobilize for their own factional interests. And I think that what one of the main lessons that came out, for me at least, from the Great March of Return is that while popular protest is important and does have successes and it united Palestinians and it mobilized them in the Gaza Strip, around this notion of return, and it did bring Gaza to the limelight in the international community, it actually failed to force Israel to respond to any of the demands until Hamas got involved, until Hamas was able to put its military backing behind the protests. And so there's a real question here for Palestinians, for Palestinians who believe in civil disobedience and popular protests, but who also do not believe in armed struggle and do not believe in firing rockets at civilian populations in Israel. There's a real question as to how to disrupt life in Israel in a way that allows for their demands to be heard without allowing their protests to be quashed. But if we really look under the surface, we're also seeing divisions, internal divisions, with Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, but with Hamas and Islamic Jihad as well. Is the recent flare-up, the rocket that was fired last Monday, is that connected to Hamas's ability to control other factions as well? So I think it's important. I, there's, there's two things I want to say in response to this. The first thing is that it's really important to stress here that... Israel's Hamas narrative, this idea that anything that comes out of the Gaza Strip is Hamas and therefore this merits lethal force, it merits self-defense, I think is reductionist. The Gaza Strip isn't Hamas and Hamas isn't the Gaza Strip. Even if there are members of Hamas participating in the Great March of Return protests, if they are not engaging in acts of violence and if they are not presenting a clear security threat to Israeli soldiers, they do not 
merit being shot. And so this idea that Hamas's involvement somehow taints the protests as Hamas protests has been self-serving for Israel, of course, and it's it's the only way that Israel is able to justify its use of disproportionate and lethal force against civilians. But having said that, if, if we look at, there are a lot of tensions and complications within the Gaza Strip. Um, I do not think this rocket fire in particular, this last one, was a result of those complications. I do think that there, there were many reasons that this specific rocket was fired. The broader reason was the reason I talked about, which is the ceasefire discussions. And this is Hamas's way of trying to compel Israel to meet its ceasefire obligations before the elections because it believes that the government of Benjamin Netanyahu isn't going to escalate before the elections on April 9th. So it mm-hmm. believes that this is its best shot to force some kind of concession from the government before the elections. But there are more immediate factors. There are the disturbances that have been happening in the riots, in the Naqab, in southern Israel, where members of Hamas and Islamic Jihad have prisoners and where there have been policies taken by Israeli security forces within the prisons to uh, prevent these prisoners from communicate, using cell phones to communicate with their external constituencies, to disperse the prisoners, to use pretty repressive tactics against the prisoners. So the rocket fire also came at a time when that was a very tense moment and, and the statement that followed the rocket fire was a clear statement of solidarity with prisoners. And there were also, and continue to be, obviously the other factors that are shaping Palestinian armed struggle from the Gaza Strip now, and those have to do with what's happening in Al-Haram al-Sharif around the Bab al-Rahma or the Gate of Mercy uh, standoff between the Waqf and Israel, and obviously what's happening in the West Bank in terms of the expanded Israeli incursions into the West Bank. and, and So mm-hmm. there, there were a lot of factors that shaped this rocket fire. I do think there are tensions between Hamas and Islamic Jihad, but in this particular instance, I don't think that was the reason that this rocket was fired. You know, there, there's rumors as to whether this rocket fire was accidental, whether it was intentional, which group uh, is behind it because uh, no faction took responsibility for it. Can you shed light on some of what's happening there? Yes, I think in terms of the two rockets that were fired on 14 March, the narrative that came out of that incident was that the rockets were fired by mistake. That was the story that ha- the Hamas leaders gave the Egyptian delegation that happened to be in the Gaza Strip on the day of the rocket fire. And that was also the story that was put forward by Israel's own security establishment. But I personally don't believe the story that the rockets were fired by mistake. I think that this narrative Mm. allows both Hamas to claim that it still is abiding by its policy of not firing rockets and giving Israel a leeway to not respond in force or through a major escalation. But at the same time, it is a demonstration of Hamas's willingness and capacity to fire rockets if Israel doesn't meet its obligations under the ceasefire. So it's it's basically a fig leaf that allows mm-hmm. both parties to pretend that they're still, you know, interested in in averting an escalation, but also reminding the other that they could also go towards an escalation if the ceasefire doesn't hold. We've discussed how the timing of this flare-up is interesting for various reasons. In 2008, Israel launched an assault on Gaza before elections as well, and that's when Bibi came into power. Is something similar happening here, or is there more to it? 
It's really interesting. You know, a lot of people tell me, and, and I think Hamas believes, that Netanyahu's government is not interested in a war in the Gaza Strip now. And that the mm. Netanyahu government has been more adept at averting crises, even allowing Qatari funding and fuel to come into the Gaza Strip, trying to alleviate, even in the short term, the economic considerations in order to avoid a major escalation. And this kind of reasoning makes one think that Netanyahu is, is, is averse to military action. And I think that many people forget that the two major military assaults that happened on the Gaza Strip happened under his watch, including mm-hmm. 2014, which was one of the most destructive military assaults on, on Palestinians. So I don't think necessarily that Netanyahu is averse to war. I think that there might very well be a situation in which a Netanyahu government would carry out a major military incursion in the Gaza Strip. But I do think that there is a sense now, or the belief, mm-hmm. that Israel especially at this moment in time, would rather not risk an escalation. And there's many reasons for that. You know, Israel is um, facing moments of tension within the Palestinians in several areas, certainly in the West Bank, obviously in the Gaza Strip and in Jerusalem, as well as um, within Israel itself. There are Uh, major challenges that are happening with regards to Hezbollah and with regards to the Northern Front uh, in Syria. But all of those are somehow secondary to Iran and what Israel perceives as being its biggest strategic threat, which is Iran. And so at this moment in time, it doesn't seem to me a priority for the Netanyahu government to engage militarily with the Gaza Strip. I think as far as the Palestinians are concerned, this government is probably most interested in stabilizing the status quo, Hmm. stabilizing the Gaza Strip under Hamas, keeping Hamas in power, stabilizing the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority, ensuring the separation of these two Palestinian territories. And as far as their policies towards the Palestinians go, the U.S. is supporting them in all their endeavors and giving them their most aspirational dreams. And so there's really no need for a military escalation. There's really no need at the moment uh, to carry out the kind of war that that happened in 2014 or even in 2012. So then walk me through the different directions this could go in. So I think that there are several developments that could happen. I think in terms of the thinking from the Palestinian factions in Gaza, specifically with regards to this rocket, I think the belief is that this rocket, like the one two weeks ago on 14th March, will force Israel back to the negotiating table, but will continue to avert an escalation, that they will somehow go back to implementing at least phases of the November ceasefire. And the November ceasefire is... And that entails more measures to lift the blockade. So it includes measures such as increasing the access of goods through the Karim Shalom crossing, increasing the number of Palestinians in Gaza who are able to enter and exit through the Erez crossing, giving permits to Palestinians in Gaza to work in Israel, increasing the buffer zone or the, the nautical miles that Palestinians are able to fish, allowing electricity into into the Gaza Strip. And so everything that alleviates economic suffering, but in ways that are more sustainable, in ways that move beyond the ban aid, short-term measures that the government has been taking so far. I don't think that's going to happen. I I don't think that there is any Israeli government, certainly not from the politicians that are now contending for power, that will look at dealing with the Gaza Strip beyond short-term 
measures to stabilize the situation, but never to allow the situation to prosper or to grow out of the misery that it's in now. So I think what what is likely to happen now is if we see no escalation happen as a result of this rocket fire today or tomorrow, I think there are still several factors that might cause triggers. So obviously there's the anniversary of the Great March of Return happening on Saturday. There's the anniversary of the Nakba, which is happening on May 30th, both those could be instances of broader mobilization among Palestinians, not just in the Gaza Strip, but elsewhere. And both those could trigger further escalations. I think that there is a a significant moment of tension that's happening in Jerusalem, and there are specific economic challenges that are happening within the West Bank that might also be causes of broader instability that we do not see yet. So I think overall, I think that we are living in a very uncertain time and one in which we can very easily see the situation tip into violence. I think until there is a genuine attempt by the Israeli government to deal with the Palestinian situation in a political manner, not in a military manner, those drivers of instability will will continue. What we're seeing as the blockade goes on, and you've written about it as well, is that Hamas is stuck between resistance and governance. Yes. And in addition to, um, you know, a a worsening humanitarian situation, we're seeing uh, citizens or residents being fed up with the situation and being more willing to criticize Hamas's government. How does this play into the security lens of what's going on? And how do you see this changing with the anniversary for the Great Return March? I think that's a great question. I think what we've seen over the course of the past week is a really insightful shift about what's been happening in the Gaza Strip. The, The We Want to Live protests that happened were, in my mind, an indication of how tired and desperate Palestinians in Gaza are, almost regardless of the reason, whether it's the PA sanctions or Hamas's poor governance or Israel's blockade, the level of desperation is such that Palestinians just want to be able to buy basic goods. And Mm -hmm. there is this widespread resentment of the fact that despite the staggering cost that they've paid, nothing has changed and nothing is likely to change. And whereas Hamas may have in the past been able to play on the the nationalism of Palestinians, their their dedication to resistance, their belief and passion that they are fighting for a bigger goal, that is slowly receding. There is no bigger mm. goal. And for many Palestinians now, the goal goes only as far as getting their family fed. And so I think Hamas is losing the ability to to justify the cost that Palestinians in Gaza are paying for their resistance. I think the way that the Hamas government dealt with the protests is reprehensible. The the widespread brutality with which they cracked down on the protesters, the beatings, the imprisonment of journalists and activists is, is really reprehensible. And I think it, it reinforced a lot of the resentment that Palestinians in Gaza feel towards Hamas. From Hamas's perspective, these protests were seen as existential because they were seen as protests that were instigated by the Palestinian Authority in order to bring down Hamas's government in the Gaza Strip. But they were also seen as ill-timed, as in instead of the 
the Palestinians and the Gaza Strip disintegrating into infighting and chaos now, Hamas's sense was that this is the time for unity. Now, before the, the Great March of Return anniversary, before the Nakba anniversary, before the Trump administration puts forward its peace proposal, now is the time for unity to emerge in the Gaza Strip. Unfortunately, to my mind at least, regardless of Hamas's rationale, mm -hmm. the means with which it cracked down on these protests should not be supported and were condemnable, are condemnable. Uh, but what that means in terms of the reality in the Gaza Strip today is that there is less buy-in into the Great March of Return. There is less buy-in into Hamas's resistance project. I think the levels of desperation is such that now Palestinians care more about their households and their basic survival than this broader national project. I think in many ways, uh, if we look at the Gaza Strip today, it's the outcome of what happens when Palestinians or any people are trampled on for, for so long. Their ability to sustain a struggle in the face of an immovable occupation really starts breaking. In the background of all that, the Trump administration this week recognized the Golan Heights as Israeli territory. On the other hand, it also committed to more humanitarian aid into Gaza. How does this affect everything that's going on? It's really, it's really interesting. I think that the, the way the Trump administration is dealing with the question of Palestine is somehow paradoxical. Because on the one hand, you hear about the Trump administration wanting to alleviate humanitarian suffering in the Gaza Strip. And on the other hand, you see them defunding UNRWA, which in many instances is a matter of life and death for Palestinians in Gaza. And so what's clear in the Trump policies is that there is an effort to depoliticize the Palestinian question. So the money is taken away from UNRWA in order to redefine who and what a Palestinian refugee is. Mm -hmm. And the money is injected into the Gaza Strip or plan to be injected into the Gaza Strip in order to fund infrastructure projects or to fund economic development. Mm -hmm. The Gaza Strip is suffering because it's under blockade. And it's under blockade because of a political decision by Israeli governments to maintain the segregation of 2 million Palestinians away from Israeli control. That decision is a political decision. The Gaza Strip is not an economic challenge to be resolved. The situation in the Gaza Strip, as in the West Bank and East Jerusalem won't be alleviated until Palestinian political rights are addressed. You know, we can see all the money flow into the Gaza Strip that we want. Under blockade and under the disenfranchisement of Palestinians there, there will be no sustainable resolution. Tarek Bakouni, thank you so much for talking to us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm Michael Schaefer Omerman. This episode was produced by myself and Henriette Shakar. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the 972 podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can leave us a comment or a rating, that will help other people find us. <laughs>